Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, when Victorian Premier Dan Andrews talks about kindness and tolerance, you just know that his own unkindness and intolerance are about to be exposed. It's an extension of his lockdown slogan, staying apart keeps us together. As George Orwell warned us, anyone who believes that is capable of also believing that religious discrimination is caring. And so it was that Andrews delivered one of his textbook sermons yesterday. It was about Andrew Thorburn, who had been appointed CEO of the Essendon Football Club on Monday. Thorburn, you see, is also a member of and chairman of the City on a Hill Church in Melbourne. Andrews tried to associate Thorburn with some allegedly heinous comments about gays and abortions that had once been published on the church's website. The comments, whatever they are, no longer exist on the website, but the website does explain the church's attitudes towards homosexuality, homosexuality and abortion as it stands today. It says they are wrong, but not in a condemnatory way. Like all Christian teachings, it says that such things are sins, but it is not for people to judge those who commit them. The church's congregants are instead encouraged to welcome these people and care for them. Dan Andrews nevertheless saw red. Referring to the deleted comments, he said, quote, those views are absolutely appalling. I don't support those views, that kind of intolerance, that kind of hatred, bigotry, it's just wrong. To dress that up as anything other than bigotry is just obviously false, unquote. Andrews knows how to turn these incidents to his advantage. He sees a church calling for compassion towards fellow sinners and instead focuses on what he calls conversion therapy which in the past has included such horrifying practices as lobotomies and sterilization. Quote, there's no place for stigmatizing people. There's no place for conversion therapy. There's no place for saying you're broken. There's something wrong with you. You're a sin. That is not appropriate. If only Andrews felt as protective towards kids confused about their gender, instead of allowing them to undergo irreversible transgender surgery to, a, to remedy a psychological condition they will almost certainly grow out of. Andrews says he is, quote, focused on the fact that people are harming themselves and sometimes taking their own lives because of bigotry and prejudice, unquote. Well, linking that to Andrew Thorburn, being the CEO of Essendon is like putting on a life vest before, before sitting down to watch the movie Titanic. The connection is, to put it mildly, a bit tenuous. But notice how selective Andrews is about these issues. He didn't care that his lockdowns actually did raise the rate of suicides, especially among young people, nor was he bothered about unkindness and intolerance when he and his own government vilified protesters and people who wished not to be injected with an experimental vaccine. 
This is another dark day for freedom in Australia. This type of intolerance for free speech and religion, by which I mean Christianity, not the imported religion that, is, that actually is hostile towards gays, is increasingly routine and lightning quick. Almost every media report of this story describes the church's attitudes towards homosexuality and abortion as controversial. They're nothing of a kind. They are, in fact, centuries old and are part of a Christian heritage that is more tolerant than Dan Andrews and the new Church of Wokeness could ever be. That Church of Wokeness took over the AFL at least a decade ago and now includes the clubs themselves. Essendon acknowledged in its cookie-cutter announcement that the supposedly offending comments from the church were made before Thorburn became a member, but that he could not serve as the club's CEO while he was still chairman of City on a Hill. It then did its best impersonation of Dan Andrews' doublespeak. Quote, We are deeply committed to our values and support wholeheartedly the work of the AFL in continuing to stamp out any discrimination based on race, sex, religion, gender, sexual identity or orientation, or physical or mental disability, unquote. Does this mean Essendon will be fielding gay transgender paraplegics in its team next year? Or do these values only apply to the administrative staff? If merit applies to selecting the team, why shouldn't it also apply to selecting other people at the club? Thorburn's reply, posted on social media, adhered to the Christian values that are supposedly the reason he was forced to resign. Quote, Let me be clear. I love all people and have always promoted and lived an inclusive, diverse, respectful and supportive workplace where people are welcomed regardless of their culture, religious beliefs and sexual orientation. I believe my record over a long period of time testifies to this." Unquote. And the worst aspect of this sorry saga? With the exception of Victorian Liberal leader Matthew Guy and Senator James Patterson, Hardly a single coalition politician has leapt to Thorburn's defence. Free speech is dying in Australia and it is being replaced by a very dangerous dogma. Well, while it's culturally acceptable to discriminate against Christians according to their faith, is it legal? This is a complex area and one that can easily be clouded by subjectivity. To help us understand it, I'll bring in Perth Loy, law academic and Catholic Rocco Loyakono in a minute. Firstly, let's break this down. Andrew Thorburn was appointed CEO, CEO of the Essendon Football Club on Monday. The chairman of the club's board, Dave Barham, said he rang five highly respected people for character references and, quote, had no reason to think anything other than he, by which he means Thorburn, was a suitable candidate, unquote. Less than 24 hours later, it was sensationally, sensationally reported 
The church, of which Thorburn is also the chairman, called City on a Hill, had in 2013 published supposedly heinous opinions about gays and abortions, which have since been deleted. It's unclear whether Thorburn knew about these comments when he later became a member of the church. He did, however, say that, quote, reducing a complex matters to a sentence is dangerous. Australia has a long tradition of diversity and religious freedom, and that must include preserving space for religious people to be able to express their religious beliefs. Not good enough, said the Essendon board, making it clear that Thorburn needed to go. Thorburn reluctantly resigned. Now let's bring Rocco in to analyse this. Rocco, welcome. Good to be with you, Fred. Firstly, Rocco, can Essendon do that? Sack someone for being a Christian? Well, under the uh, Equal Opportunity or Anti-Discrimination Laws in each state, um, and indeed under the Fair Work Act, um, you cannot uh, discriminate against a person on the basis of, of religious belief. I think the, the complicating factor here is, is that uh, Thorburn uh, resigned, so the question is whether he left of his own accord. But the fact of the matter is that if he felt that he was intimidated into being pushed out of his job, I think that um, there, there's an issue there. And in fact, um, the, I know that the Human Rights Law Alliance has taken on uh, numerous cases where people have felt they cannot continue in their jobs or indeed have been, have been removed from their jobs on the basis of their religious belief. Yeah, actually, I should clarify that um, Essendon did not sack uh, Thorburn, but it did make it clear on its website that Thorburn was no longer welcome. Now, I know this is almost heresy to say this, Rocco, but what would happen if Thorburn had been Muslim and expressed this type of homophobia or alleged homophobia? We still don't know what was said on the, uh, on the uh, City on a Hill website, but let's say, for example, uh, Thorburn was Muslim and expressed the type of homophobia that can sometimes be associated with Islam. What would have happened then? Well, I think uh, in in the current environment, um, we had a look at what we had a look at uh, what happened with um, it was the AFLW uh, Hanin Zrika who was allowed to opt out of wearing a pride jersey um, for the pride round, and Farwad Ahmed who uh, who was allowed. Uh, the cricketer who was allowed not to have a beer logo uh, on his on his cricket shirt because it offended his beliefs. Um, there is definitely a double standard here, and I think that at the moment um, there is definitely the view that uh, if you if you're a Christian, you're fair game, but uh, anything else seems to be able to get, seems to be okay. So then that would suggest that this is a case of religious discrimination, right? Well, I don't think there's any other way. I don't think there's any other way you can put it. I mean, look at. Um, imagine if he also said, um, if he also said that, uh, or, or the church had put on its website something about adulterers. I mean, look, we're into we're into Israel Falau uh, territory here, aren't we? And and it seems to be just happening again. We always seem to have this this group of people that are always willing to look for offence and to go through and trawl through people's careers and their lives to find something that may be hurtful or offensive. And the rest of us have to go through life uh, making sure that we don't offend people. And that I, I just think it's ridiculous. And Matt Canavet made this point this morning on the Today Show that someone has to be able to, that it's possible for someone to lose their job because they've created hurt. 
I mean, issues like abortion, euthanasia, who can marry, we know that they are issues in society which are red hot and which cause division, and people are going to have differences of opinion. That is, that is the nature of it. And people in this society have to be able to express those views and, be, and people have to be able to tolerate uh, other persons' views, whether they agree with them or not. I and mean, that's the foundation of, of our society and our civilization. Indeed, you can't have free speech without people being offended. Now, speaking of offended, let's refer now to Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act. Now, that says it is illegal to offend, humiliate or intimidate based on race, colour or national or ethnic origin. Now, how does 18C relate to this incident, Rocco? Well, I think the problem with Section 18C is that it has assisted in creating this culture, this uh, victimhood, this this idea that people have to consistently look to be offended. And I think that's where um, this, earlier in the year when the Morrison government, then Morrison government, wanted to pass its anti-religious discrimination legislation, I think that's where it has gone wrong because it decided that people who hold a religious belief are a special species that need to be protected. Whereas people holding religious belief don't actually hold that at all. They're happy for people. Uh, they're happy for people to uh, disagree with them, and as long as they allow, as long as people re- recognise that this is part of their belief. Now, the thing about Section 18C is, if it were repealed, I think it would go a long way to ending this whole I, this whole victimhood industry and people looking for hurt and people looking for offence. Um, that's I think that what I think would be a great a, a great step forward rather than looking to protect special sections of people based on, on, special, on special considerations about their belief and whatnot. Oh, Rocco, can you imagine the furor if anyone suggested we repeal Section 18C? I mean, it has been tried twice in recent years. Both times it failed miserably. I'm, I'm reminded of what Michael Lavarch, who was the Labor Attorney General when Section 18C was introduced to the Parliament and passed through the Parliament, He said that Section 18C, the word he used to describe it, one of the words he used to describe it was educative, meaning that this was legislation intended to educate the likes of you and I, Rocco, against being uh, bigoted racists, which is uh, what uh, what we are now all afraid of being. Can law be educative, Rocco? Well, I always tell my students that the, the purpose of the law is is not necessarily um, educative, but it's to encourage a certain type of behaviour in the sense that, look, um, you know, that's why we have speeding fines and things like that, is to stop people obviously um, going too fast because they, they might cause an accident. But um, the fact of the matter is in this kind of, in this kind of thing, um, we have to be able to realise that the purpose of uh, of, pe- of us living in this society is that we're all going to be different and we're all going to have different views. Now, if you've got, um, if you've got out and out, uh, shall we call it, um, uh, open racism, well, that can be dealt with and that, can, and, and that can be confronted. But it's this idea that underneath us, you know, we've got this unconscious bias or unconscious, uh, unconscious racism that we have to deal with or, uh, or unconscious bigotry that we have to deal with that in itself is actually bigotry because what that means is, is as we're seeing now, that if, if, you, if you're a Christian, um, you're out crowd. 
And the whole purpose of, of Christianity is that it's not meant to be in line with society's views. It's actually it's actually a counter-cultural religion. I mean, Christ himself told his apostles at the Last Supper, look, uh, know that if you, the world hates you, it has hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you're not of the world, the world hates you. And we're definitely seeing that today with, with Christians right around the world. Um, it, there seems to be this idea about pre- the practice of religion, particularly Christianity, that, look, as long as you can go to church on a Sunday, that's where we leave it. Anything else um, you can't you can't do or say. But people far realise that Christianity is a, is a way of life. It's about living one's belief and living one's life according to, to certain beliefs. And those beliefs are, in fact, the foundation for our civilization. It's, it's kind of disturbing that people don't value them so much anymore. Now, Essendon Chairman Dave Barham says he had no doubt that Thor- Thorburn was a good uh, candidate for the job. How can Essendon now say that he wasn't? How can they change their minds like that? I'm, I'm speaking in it from a legal perspective. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 uh, yeah, from what is it? His their, their minds changed in in uh, less than forty eight hours. Um, I don't. Uh, it, it boggles the mind that we are now divorcing a person's ability to conduct a role based on personal belief. I, I mean, this is where you have the state intruding onto everything and a certain type of thought police intruding onto everything and saying, "Look, tick the box." Um, what you what you think in your in your in the privacy of your own home uh, now impinges on how you can do your job. As far as I can see, Andrew Thorburn has an unblemished career in the corporate world. What he was chief executive of the NAB, and there were there were no issues. And it wasn't until all that long ago that I think Roger Corbett, who was CEO of Woolworths, um, it, it was well known that he had deep held Christian beliefs, and that wasn't a problem then. Um, there is definitely something sinister in our society and in our boardrooms that has happened over the last three or four years. And uh, the, the fact that now people are determining on the basis of your belief that that now impinges on your ability whether you can you can conduct the job. I mean, I only thought that the the the, the only category or the only criterion for performing a job is whether you were the best person or not, based on based on your history and how you perform similar jobs in the past. Not whether that not and not having anything to do with the colour of, of your skin or your religious belief or, or indeed your sexuality or whatever. Well what's changed, Rocco, which which you're implying, is that companies now don't just operate for their shareholders to make money or for, in this case, you know, a football club's members to see the club win premierships. They now must espouse values. And Rocco, you won't be surprised to hear that those values are all woke. So I guess almost perhaps not in theory, but in practice, you can sack a CEO for having the wrong values because that's part of his job description now. Yeah, and like you said, I always the criterion was that yeah, it's, isn't it the isn't it the win loss ledger that uh, that is the, that that is the most important thing? Um, look, go woke, go broke. Uh, I mean, the Wallabies uh, went. Uh, what was it in that match against uh, against England that you know, they got rid of the the, the captain Cook Cup and they, they were celebrate they were singing the national anthem in, in the indigenous language of the area. Now, okay, but at the end of the day, they got they got smashed. Um, Look, all these values, it's all well and good to, to espouse them, but I think they're going to find at the end of the day 
um, that politics and sport weren't necessarily a, weren't necessarily a good mix and shouldn't be a good mix in the future. And just to show a practical example of that, the grid girls uh, on Formula One were removed a few years ago, and guess what? They've worked out that it doesn't have anything to do with the ability of a driver to win a race, so the grid girls are back. <laughs> exactly. Now, let's uh, hypothesise here. If Thorburn sued, under what laws would it be and how much would he get in compensation if he won? Um, I would have thought there it, it would come un, I would have thought it would have come under the fair work uh, legislation uh, that uh, people cannot be discriminated against uh, on the basis of, of religious of religious belief. Um, in terms of compensation, uh, it would depend on how much his contract was and uh, whether they Essendon and Thorburn are prepared to come to some kind of agreement in terms of the payout. Uh, of, of, of what he was being paid and how much was left on his contract. When well, he only started the day, yeah. I, I assume it was a three, three or four-year contract, so there'd be, yeah. there'd be quite a bit of a payout there if, if, it, uh, if it went all the way. Well, somehow I think we haven't seen the last of this case. Now, just quickly before you go, Rocco, just 30 seconds left, the, um, not, many po not many politicians have stood up to defend Thorburn. Do you think, I should point out, uh, James Patterson and Matthew Guy in Victoria are two of the most prominent that I've seen, but do you think our conservative political leaders are underestimating the number of Australians who are sick of all this woke rubbish? Oh, look, absolutely, um, absolutely. Uh, you, you only had to watch the election coverage on another network um, where Michael Kroger um, on election night was decrying the fact that no one in the Liberal Party had stood up for religious belief. If I recall rightly, he said, look, if the coalition had gone to the election saying never again will people be prevented from practising uh, their religion, uh, and he was talking in the context of COVID measures, um, referring, of course, to churches being closed and, and synagogues being closed and the like, then he believes the coalition would have would have won in a canter. And you only have to look at um, the coalition's uh, vote where it went up, uh, in certain electorates, uh, where it was working class electorates, where people are socially conservative and do indeed hold religious beliefs. It's an area which I think also saw Georgia Meloni over the line, very much so in Italy, that people are sick and tired of having their religious beliefs undermined and uh, them being, not being able to participate in society because of their religious beliefs. They are indeed. Rocco Loyacono, thanks for your insight and your passion on this subject. Thanks, Fred. Always great to be interviewed by you. That's Perth Law Professor Rocco Loyacano. Well, being part of the counterculture was a walk in the park in the 1960s and 70s. All you needed to do was eat mung beans, smoke herbs and not have a job. But things are more complicated now that the counterculture has gone mainstream. For a start, a lot of people feel the need to spout pieties about environmental sustainability, regardless of how contrary that is to everything else they do. This isn't easy, as the Sydney Morning Herald illustrated this week. This story is ostensibly about teenage Sydney surfer Tully White, who is currently sixth in the world longboard rankings and going to California this week to compete for the world title. But neither she nor the Herald could do that without adding the rudimentary message about the environment, which according to journalist Dan Walsh is, quote, a reminder of something bigger at play, unquote. 
on White's surfboard is a sticker saying, Surfers for Climate, a group for which she was the founding ambassador in 2019. She's also studying environmental science, specialising in climate change and sustainability at Charles Sturt University. While she was in California last year, she witnessed the wash-up of a minor local offshore oil spill, which left what she described as little bits of asphalt on the shore, and she saw people trying to scrub oil off the rocks on the beach. She said, quote, It was just bizarre, and I'd hate to see Australia ever get to that point, unquote. She didn't, men she didn't mention that the oil was being extracted to fuel the jets that fly her around the world to compete and to manufacture the surfboards and wetsuits that are the tools of her sporting trade. She manages to avoid addressing this potential conflict by saying, surfers for climate is more about writing petitions and starting conversations than urging people to change their behavior. We have long since passed the point where environmentalists need to alter their behavior. All they need to do is announce their membership of the sustainability religion and claim the moral sanctity that it bestows. As we all know, sustainability isn't about saving the planet, it's just about being part of the culture. Well, the new federal government is coming good on one promise, which is to increase the subsidies paid to childcare centres. Funnily enough, it's the promises that spend money that are the easiest ones to keep. But do these subsidies work? Let's get Canberra's 2CC Talkback host, Stephen Senatiempo, in to talk about it. Stephen, welcome. Good evening, Fred. Good to see you. Stephen, these subsidies are meant to make childcare uh, cheaper for parents, but do they? Well, look, I, I think in the initial stages they do, but what we've seen over the last, I think, five or six years is that the operators of these childcare centres take the subsidies and then push their prices up. So, I mean, ultimately all we're doing is making a whole bunch of ri rich childcare providers rather than actually helping parents out. Now, I mean, ultimately, look, it is helping parents because they do get these subsidies, but it's like anything. When you feed money into into an industry, it, it, causes, it's an, it has an inflationary uh, impact. So you effectively push the price of everything up and ultimately uh, down the track, it's going to hit the hip pocket of the people that need, it, need the money the most. Well, here's a quote that would seem to agree with what you just said. It's from a publication called The Sector, which covers childcare, the, the childcare industry. Quote, it is anticipated that significant price increases will be passed by the approved provider community in the September quarter of this year. However, a series of supportive measures announced by the Labor government will serve to cushion the blow, unquote. Cushion the blow, that's it really, isn't it? Well, that's right. And it's just, a, it becomes a perpetuating cycle where you keep feeding money in, the price keep going up, you keep feeding more money in. Um, there's gotta be a better way to do it. I mean, look, we, we find ourselves in a situation now where the average family can't afford to have one parent go to work and one stay at home. So childcare has become a necessity rather than a luxury, but there's gotta be a better way to do it 
than keep feeding this crocodile of creating an industry full of millionaires. I mean, how often do you you drive past a childcare centre and there's a, a Porsche or an expensive Mercedes <laughs> parked in the car park, and it ain't one of the parents, let me tell you. <laughs> That's a very good observation. Um, well, let, just, just to expand on that point, it's no coincidence, I'd say, that one of the most popular politicians in the world today is the new Italian leader, Georgia Maloney. She says the state should yep. not, one of the reasons she, was, she is so popular in Italy is that she says the state should not encourage any behavior that detracts from the basic family unit. But by subsidizing childcare, the government, our Australian government is simply telling women that work is more valid than motherhood. Now, call me cynical, Stephen, but I can't help thinking that a woman is more valuable to the government as a taxpayer than she is as a mother. What do you think? Yeah, look, I think it goes further than that. You're right. I mean, and, and your cynicism is correct, but uh, there's been a for decades now, a, a breakdown of the, the basic building blocks of society. I mean, you know, we, we live in a, a society that was built on Judeo-Christian principles and built on the nuclear family as the ultimate foundation building block of our society. And, and I don't care you know, how woke you want to be. And let's, for, for the sake of the argument, say that all these woke warriors are 100% right. A society still needs that basic family as its fundamental building block. There's no two ways about that. And we're doing everything we possibly can to smash that. Now, it's every woman's right to do whatever they want to do. If they want to go to work, they can. But I don't think it's smart for us to diminish the role of motherhood in the process. Motherhood is the most important job in the world. And you know, if we tell a woman that she is less because she decides to focus on raising children rather than building a career and breaking the glass ceiling and all these other things. We've done, I think we've done women a disservice. I think you're right, because most jobs are hardly as stimulating as it is to raise kids. You know, it's, it's one of the most rewarding, rewarding things in the world. Well, let's talk about another expensive election promise, the regional first home buyer guarantee. The first phase of this started rolling out this week on October 1. It offers 10,000 people the opportunity to buy a house on a 5% five, a 5 deposit or as little as a 5% five, 5 deposit. Stephen, this type of government meddling in markets is almost always fraught with danger. What pitfalls do you see in this scheme? Yeah, well, there's two problems here. And, and I guess the, the benefit of this scheme is that it is capped to the number of people that will actually benefit from it. So it's, you know, you're basically picking winners and picking losers. And I hate it when governments do that. But again, you're feeding the, you're feeding the demand side of the property market without focusing on the supply side. Now, here in the ACT, we see it more than anywhere else. We've got a government that, that fundamentally and philosophically hates people living in, in detached houses. They want everybody living in apartment blocks on top of each other. If you, if you restrict supply and you strangle supply, the price goes up. And that's exactly what's happening here is you're feeding that demand again without doing anything to increase supply. And until we get all three levels of government working together to make sure that we are releasing land that is available. And yeah, sure, you know, urban sprawl is a problem. But the reason urban sprawl is a problem is because governments won't in invest in the infrastructure necessary to make urban sprawl manageable. So we've it's. One of those things that it, it, I don't know how we put the genie back in the bottle, because this is a problem that started years and years ago. We need to have enough land so that people can build uh, quarter acre blocks are gone. Two, no two ways about it. But if you want to have a backyard so your kids can play, we need to provide enough land so that people can do that. 
and then provide the roads, the parks, the shopping centres, the other infrastructure that they need in order to make that lifestyle manageable and the public transport and transport routes necessary so that they can then live wherever they live and then commute to wherever it is they work. We're always approaching things from the wrong side of the debate, and that's what's happening here again. The new federal housing minister called a meeting of all of all her state uh, um, counterparts in July. And I mean, they were meant to have a, you know, a roundtable discussion on how to solve this problem. It's now October. I mean, why is it that housing ministers seem incapable of creating housing? Isn't what they're meant to do? Well, it is. And, and again, it comes down to we're, we're over-governed in this country and it's because of the, the demarcation lines between state, local and federal. Um, state governments realistically are responsible with providing the land. Local governments provide are responsible for the regulation of that land. They create so much red tape that firstly pushes the price up. You've got state governments restricting supply because they don't want to build the infrastructure necessary to go along with the blocks of land. And if they do, they want the federal government to pay for it. The federal government says, well, hang on, we're paying for everything else. We can't afford this. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we now, we now have a federal government that has waited nine years to get back into parliament. We've just discussed two of its key policies, both of which seem to be inflationary and don't solve the problem. Bit disappointing, isn't it, Stephen? After nine years, all they come up with is this rubbish. Well, and let's look even further, let's narrow it down to the last three years, where they told us that if you elect us at the next election, we are going to fix the cost of living problem. Um, they've done nothing to alleviate cost of living pressures on, on average Aussie families, nothing whatsoever. Oh, yeah, exactly. And inflation is out of hand and energy prices are about to go through the roof. Anyway, let's talk about another yeah. another expensive story. This is this is very alarming. This repatriation of uh, um, men and their wives and their children who went off to fight for ISIS uh, in Syria in 2014. The federal government is well down the road of bringing home these terrorists and their wives and kids. Um, the men were actually fighting against Australian troops at times, or potentially mm. fighting. They were certainly on the opposite side, that's for sure. Now, Stephen, do you remember this being part of Labor, the, the, the Labor election campaign this year? No, I, I really don't. And look, I, I have some misgivings about this. I'll, I understand the arguments that say these women are Australian citizens, or some of them are. Uh, some of them were coerced into going overseas with their husbands or partners. I, I get those arguments, but we are talking about people that we know are radicalised. And I spoke to one professor this week who suggested that we have a better, uh, we, we are better equipped in Australia to de-radicalise them and put programs into place uh, where they won't fall back into these habits than exist in Syria. But I think, well, you know, that's all well and good, but you're importing a problem that you haven't got. Exactly. I mean, why do we need to do radical? Why do we need to de-radicalise them anyway? Well, that's right. And I asked the question, and and there's all. And I guess this is a, a broader topic. But whenever we see buffeted Aussies go to Bali or somewhere and get themselves into trouble, the first thing they do is put their hand up and say, "The Australian government must help me get myself out of this problem." 
at what point does Australian citizenship come with responsibilities as well as rights? Exactly, exactly. And also, these people only want to, only want to come back because it turns out they back the losing side. You know, if ISIS was yeah, still absolutely. a caliphate, then they'd be they'd be living in paradise. And uh, you know, mm. to hell with their Australian passports. But mate, I, Stephen, I think this is the kind of thing, exactly the kind of thing that infuriates the punters. What are your listeners saying about it? Oh, the exact same thing. I mean, I was inundated with emails and texts this morning saying, you know, why are we why are we bringing a problem back to Australia that effectively got rid of itself? Now, I, I hate to refer to people as problems, but that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a group of people who were so, I guess, enraged by the Australian way of life that they decided to go overseas and fight against it, fight for a group of people that uh, find everything that we stand for anathema um, and now we're going to bring them back and try and incorporate them into our society again. I, I don't know how you make that happen. Well, here's one of the uh, reasons some people in the media are saying it's a good idea. And that's that if we repatriate these people and there's something dubious about what they got up to in Syria, then we can stick them in a court of law and try them for these crimes. Stephen, that's ridiculous. I mean, this happened eight years ago on the other side of the world. How can we try them? Well, uh, that's a good point. I mean, how do you how do you try somebody for a crime they committed somewhere else in another jurisdiction? You know, uh, it's it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, the other issue is too is that the argument is is that if we leave them in Syria, they continue to be radicalised and they fall back into ISIS and ISIS grows again. Well, you know, that byproduct of the fact that we cut and ran too early from before the job was done over there. Yeah, exactly. And if it's a problem in Syria, then it's a problem in Syria. Why bring it home to us? Yeah. Now, there's a lot of debate exactly. about the parlour state of free speech at the moment, Stephen, um, but there mm. is one ray of light. Elon Musk has called off the lawyers and is apparently going to go ahead with his ac acquisition of Twitter under the original terms. Stephen, you're on Twitter. Do you think it'll, it's going to become a bastion of free speech under Elon Musk? Look, we all hope so. Um, but it's funny that uh, I saw a bunch of people that have, have a conservative bent today suggesting that they'd lost, lost a whole bunch of followers and that there was some sort of Twitter purge. Um, if we can stop that from happening, that'd be great. Um, but I think this was all just an exercise of Elon Musk not actually having the money and using this time to actually put the money together so you go through with what he was originally going to do in the first place. Oh, that's a good theory. I hadn't heard that one. But I mean, the theory that the place is uh, infested with bots is a pretty good one too, isn't it? Excuse me. Yeah, I think um, that's been the sticking point apparently is that Musk has this idea that there are a hell of a lot more bots than Twitter seems to think they are. I think they're saying there's 5% and he's saying there's something like 20 or 30%. Um, even if it is only 5%, I would have thought it's too many. But yeah. the first thing he's got to do when he takes over is make sure that everybody who signs up to an account is a real person signed up under their own name. I don't get this argument that oh, some people need to be able to hide behind a pseudonym on Twitter. Why? If you're going to put your, your views out there in the marketplace, do what we do. Do it under your own steam. And we put our faces to the name. We put our voices to the name. Everybody should be forced to do the same. If we're going to create a society where everybody with a smartphone is effectively a journalist now, well, then play by the same rules the rest of us do. Well said. Well, just before you go, I've just got 30 seconds to go. But uh, speaking of uh, expressing your opinions, 
under your own name. What's your, what's your thoughts on Andrew Thorburn, who's just been forced to resign from as CEO of the Essendon Football Club? What an absolute disgrace. Um, firstly, this bloke has been sacked effectively because of something that somebody else said eight years before he was associated with them, something he didn't even know they said. Um, but more importantly than that is we've now got um, we've almost enshrined religious discrimination where the, the president of the Essendon Club says, well, we couldn't ask him about his religious beliefs during the interview process. We had to wait till, till we hired him before we could then sack him for them. I mean, it's, it, what have we come to when that's the, that's the way we operate now? That's a very good question, Stephen. I hope, I hope these dark days are over soon. Stephen Senatiembo, thanks for your time. Good on you, Fred. Talk to you next week. That's Canberra's 2CC Talkback host, Stephen Senatiempo. And just before I go, the Australian's foreign editor, Greg Sheridan, published an interesting anecdote today about an encounter former Prime Minister Tony Abbott had with Russian President Vladimir Putin in 2015. Although it's nine years old, the anecdote casts a dark shadow over the Kremlin today and the possibility of it launching a nuclear weapon if Russia is defeated in the war in Ukraine. At a meeting in 2014, Abbott tried to upbraid Putin for being indirectly involved in the downing of Malaysian flight MH17 over Ukraine in 2014. Everyone aboard died, including 38 Australians. Abbott said Putin owed the victims' families an apology. Putin wasn't having it and tried to explain why he and Abbott saw things differently. He said, quote, You are not a native Australian. I am a native Russian. Sheridan goes on to say that Putin's ultra-nationalism enables his territorial aggression, but that it's, quote, still unlikely nuclear weapons will be used, unquote. Walter Russell Mead in the Wall Street Journal isn't quite so sanguine. He says, quote, Putin sees global politics today as a struggle between a rapacious and domineering West and the rest of the world bent on resisting our arrogance and exploitation. The West is cynical and hypocritical and its professed devotion to liberal values is a sham, unquote. Well, after what the AFL and Essendon did to Andrew Thorburn today, you'd have to say... Putin has a point. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to tune back in tomorrow at 8pm for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine o'clock. Good night.